If you think back to the, when we started, we thought about the Bible being the inspired word of God, that it breathes the very life of God into our lives. And then we thought about our origins, that we're made on purpose, out of love, for a purpose. And our purpose primarily is to be with him, uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But also, it speaks in Ephesians about there being good works prepared in advance for us to do. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at two big themes of the Old Testament, two key themes of Judaism, about the exodus, that God hears the cry of the oppressed and takes us from this uh, captivity, slavery, on this long road to freedom to the promised land. And then last week, we thought about exile and about this key moment in the history of Israel, which meant that the Israelites were taken from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, and they stayed there for decades. They were dislocated. They were homesick. But actually, the purpose of the exile is to bring this nation back to God. And today, our theme is Messiah. And Messiah is a Hebrew word which literally means anointed one. And when you take the Hebrew word Messiah and you translate it into Greek, we get the word Christos or Christ. And so Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah. And in ancient Judaism, there was this ongoing expectation that the Messiah, God's anointed one, God's chosen one, uh, who was to be a son of King David or in David's line, would be used by the God of Israel to come and rescue Israel from their pagan enemies. And then throughout the Old Testament, what we find is there are lots of stories and prophecies and promises that anticipate the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah who would come defeat the enemies of Israel and cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. There were lots of, over time, lots of would-be Messiahs that kind of popped up, claiming to be the one that people were waiting for, but many of them actually ended up dead or they ended up living in obscurity. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus in his ministry, and we find that written about in the Gospels, makes claims to be the Messiah. And many people thought that he was the one that they had been waiting all these years for, particularly as they found themselves under the heavy boot of the Roman Empire. But then, like other would-be messiahs, Jesus gets himself crucified. Clearly not a good sign, uh, and clear in many ways that he wasn't the Messiah, as some people have hoped. That was Friday but then Sunday was coming. And the resurrection happened and changed everything. We're going to have another Bible reading now, and uh, it's from uh, Luke 24, known as the Road to Emmaus. If you've got your notice sheet, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheet, and Anna's just going to read that to us. <laughs> Luke 24. <clears throat> Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, 
and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. <coughs> then now some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Um, Luke 24 is an intriguing story known as the road to Emmaus. And we come across two of Jesus' followers, uh, possibly a husband and wife called Cleopas and Mary. And it's very likely that Mary was one of the women who had been at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, that she'd actually seen Jesus breathe his last breath. And what happens is, is that this couple, Cleopas and Mary, are leaving Jerusalem with a whole load of other pilgrims who'd been in the city for the Passover. And they were walking along this dusty road to Emmaus, which is a village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 17 that they were downcast. Well, why is that? Well, possibly... This last week had been the worst week of their lives. In some ways, it had started well. Maybe they'd been with the other disciples as Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, as people began to sing hymns and shout Hosanna and wave palm branches because they thought Jesus was the Messiah. They may well have been with Jesus after that when he was cleansing the temple, which is the action of an anticipated Messiah. They were probably... Oh, someone's not very happy. They were probably all too aware that, that in the shadows, there were powerful people who wanted Jesus dead. And they probably saw that after uh, Jesus was mocked and viciously whipped, um, that Mary then maybe watched him as he struggled under the weight of this cruel Roman cross. And she literally saw Jesus hung out to die before Jesus was pronounced dead and placed in a borrowed tomb. You know, for Mary and Cleopas, what had happened in this last week was a tragedy of epic proportions because Jesus wasn't just a friend who taught some good ways to live, but as it says in that text in verse 21, it says that they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the anointed one they'd been waiting for, that this man was going to lead them in a revolution that was going to bring an uprising against the pagan Roman Empire and that Jesus would kick 
the Romans out of Jerusalem. They would then depose this puppet king, King Herod, and put Jesus in the top spot, and for him to be like King David, and for Israel to be a free and powerful nation once again. Cleopas and Mary had messianic expectations for Jesus, but then he gets himself crucified, and so he's just another would-be dead Messiah. All of their hope is lost. But then on this road to Emmaus, this stranger turns up, who we know as Jesus. He was the same, but he was different. And at first, this couple didn't recognize that this was Jesus. And in the midst of their confusion and their despair about all that had taken place in this last week, this stranger asks them, what is it you're talking about? And so they begin to explain to him what has gone on over these past few days. And this stranger turns to them and says this, how foolish you are. It's a bit rude, isn't it? And, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, a stranger explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so for the next few hours, uh, assuming that they were walking at a fairly leisurely pace in the hot sun, this stranger then begins to tell them what the Bible says about their friend, Jesus, who they've seen crucified. And in some ways, he's emphasizing from page one right to the final word in the Old Testament that the Bible is in fact a unified story that leads to Jesus. And I've often wondered what Jesus said to that couple on the road to Emmaus. We don't actually know, so I'm just going to read between the lines and just pick out three things that maybe this stranger may have said to Cleopas and Mary about himself on the road to Emmaus that helped them to see that Jesus' death was not the end of hope, but it was actually the beginning of hope and new life for them and for the world. The three things I want to focus on are the snake crusher, Moses part two, and the suffering servant. Two of them sound like wrestlers. But the snake crusher, if you go right back to Genesis 3, what we find is a talking snake. The arch atheist Richard Dawkins said that a talking snake is as ridiculous as a winged horse, and I think he's got a point. Now, some might read this literally. I take this story as what you might call an allegory. It contains deep and universal truth. And so we know, many of us, the story in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Everything was good. But there was one tree they were told not to eat from because if they did, it would be dangerous and it would kill them. So they just need to avoid the fruit tree and they will be fine. But in this garden, up pops a talking snake who tells them a different story. The snake says, if you eat of the tree it won't kill you. In fact, if you eat of it, you'll become like God. So Adam and Eve believe this talking snake over God, eat the fruit from the tree. And as a consequence of that, what we find in the text, it says that evil and death and pain and conflict enter into God's world and spread like a virus. The snake is a symbolic source of evil and death and pain and conflict. And that same evil and death overshadows not just their lives then, but our lives today. But in Genesis 3, there is some hope. God says in Genesis 3 that is someone, a son of Eve, is going to come, and that son of Eve will crush the snake's head and will destroy evil 
at its source. However, it also says that the snake will bite the son of Eve's heel, and so there will be mutual destruction of both the snake and the son of Eve. So what humanity is looking for after that story has been told is they're looking for a snake crusher, someone sent by God who will bring an end to evil and death and conflict and pain. As you go through Genesis, we find that Abraham is chosen by God so that God's goodness and blessing will be poured out on humanity. A bit later on, we then come across one of his grandsons, Judah. He receives another promise that despite evil and death, there is a king that will come from his descendants and that he will bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and celebration. The implication is, is that there will be someone that comes from Judah, the grandson of Abraham, who will be the snake crusher. Over time, along comes King David. Could he be the one that crushes the head of the snake? Well, sadly not. We find as we look at his life that even though his heart was after God, he gets infected by the evil of the snake. And though that God does make, though, a promise that the snake crusher will come from his descendants. So as you go through the Old Testament, you come across the story of David's royal descendants. And one by one, they each give in to money, sex or power or all three. The symbolic snake continues to have the upper hand and evil and death are all around. Then we find over time that God's people end up in exile and you might think that the whole plan of God so that his people would be a blessing to bless the world has come to an end. But despite the darkness and the evil that overshadows God's people and in fact the whole world, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, they keep turning up and they keep saying that someone is coming a son of David who will defeat death and evil, who will restore the Garden of Eden. They keep talking about the one who will crush the snake. One prophet, Isaiah, says that this promised king will come and be fatally wounded because of the evil of humanity. But then he says that same king will come back from death and will be a source of peace and healing for the world. But then as you go through the story, for centuries, this snake-crushing king never turns up. But then along comes Jesus. And he begins to fulfill the ancient promises. He's in the line of David and Judah and Abraham. He travels around Israel announcing the good news of God's kingdom. He confronts the effects of the snake's evil by healing and forgiving. Could this man be the son of Eve who will crush the snake? Jesus actually is clear that he is going to become king, he will bring peace, and he will take the full force of evil upon himself. And that's what happens on the cross. He suffers a fatal snake bind, snake bite wound, and he dies. And as these disciples look on, his story is a tragedy. But then what we find, he rises from the dead. Jesus has crushed this snake and now has power over evil and death. And he offers that same power over evil and death to all those who turn to him. And he promises that though evil and death are still around, that one day he will come back and he will finish the job and destroy the snake once and for all and restore the garden here on earth. Jesus is the snake crusher spoken about in Genesis 3 
and anticipated all the way through the Old Testament. It is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Jesus is also Moses, Moses part two, who leads his people from a bitter place of slavery to freedom, a better place. He takes them from Egypt to the promised land. At the beginning of the first century in Jerusalem, even though God's people had come back from Babylon and their exile, and they'd rebuilt the walls, and they'd built another temple, things in Jerusalem and across Israel just weren't the same as their glorious history. They were still under the boot of an empire, this time the Roman Empire. They were in occupied territory, and they felt like they were still in exile, even though they had come home. They were home, but occupied territory and oppression had taken over them by the Roman Empire. And they were living with maybe the hope of these suspended promises of God. What they were looking for was another Moses-type figure who would lead them from a bitter place to a better place. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, it says that God's people were in Egypt for 430 years in slavery, and then Moses turns up. He leads them on this long walk to freedom to the promised land. The end of the exile in Babylon was marked by Nehemiah starting to build Jerusalem and the temple. That took place in 430 years BC. So what we have is 430 years in Exodus and along comes Moses. And then we have 430 years back home in Jerusalem still feeling like exile and Jesus is born. Jesus is like Moses, the one they've been waiting for. And what we find is through his life and his death and his resurrection, he leads his people from a bitter place to a better place, from sin to forgiveness and new life. I reckon that that's another story this stranger spoke about on the road to Emmaus concerning himself, that Jesus was like Moses of old. Finally, the suffering servant. The prophet Isaiah, in his prophecy, wrote four poems known as the servant songs. And they're all about this servant of God who is going to lead the nations, but who suffers terribly at the hands of humanity, but is rewarded by God. Parts of Isaiah 53 say this, that he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This servant of God took up our pain and bore our suffering. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, in other words, he dies, it then goes on and says, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. There is a reward of resurrection life. The suffering servant suffers terribly but is rewarded by new life. I think that on that road to Emmaus, where Cleopas and Mary are obviously very grief-stricken and suffering because of the death of Jesus, their hope for Messiah, that this stranger begins to explain to them, using Isaiah's poems about the suffering servant, that God is with them in their suffering and their pain. And that the promise of God is that they will know resurrection life. In the third century before Jesus, there was a philosopher called Epicurus. He doubted that the gods, if there were any gods, weren't interested in life on earth. 
And if the gods don't care, we might as well just try and enjoy the few years we have on this bleak existence amidst our suffering and our pain. The servant songs of Isaiah beg to differ with Epicurus, and that rather than God being disconnected and disinterested in the plight of humanity and the inevitable suffering and evil that we find in the world, the servant songs of Isaiah put forward that God knows and understands suffering all too well because of the suffering servant who we see in the cross of Christ. The God of the Bible is not disconnected and disinterested in humanity, but he is with us in the suffering and the pain. A bishop and theologian, Graham Tomlin, wrote this, the insight that this man hanging on the cross is none other than the Son of God crying out with his sense of abandonment by his Father gives us a unique insight. And the insight is this, God in the person of the Son knows what it is to suffer abandonment, agony, and death. Whenever the Christian faces suffering of any kind, she knows, even when it does not feel like it, that God stands close by, not as a distant, sympathetic observer, but as an intimate participant, as someone who knows intimately what pain is. Maybe that stranger on the road to Emmaus, talks to Cleopas and Mary about Isaiah's servant songs. And he assures them that God knows what it is to suffer because of the crucifixion. And that whilst the crucifixion appeared to be the last word on Jesus, that the crucifixion was in fact a victory over sin and evil and suffering and death. The cross was not the last word. Maybe that stranger reminded them of some of the last words of Jesus which came up on that film, which weren't, I am finished, but it is finished. And that those last words weren't about defeat, but actually they were about victory over sin and evil and death. This battle, Jesus was saying, is finished. Maybe he then explained to Cleopas and Mary that his resurrection from the dead three days later emphasizes that suffering and death are simply not strong enough to overcome the God of love. That suffering is, eternal, is temporary, but God is eternal. Maybe that stranger on the road to Emmaus gave Cleopas and Mary a sneak preview into the book of Revelation. After all, he was going to write it and assured them that Jesus would wipe away every tear from their eyes, that there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, and that God will make all things new because of the suffering servant spoken about in Isaiah. So, to wrap up, the snake crusher, Moses part two in the suffering servant, and maybe just three things this stranger speaks to this couple on the road to Emmaus. And what we discover is that this stranger, as he explains scripture to them, converts all of their despair into hope and the vision of a new future. They say that they stopped for food. In verse 31, it says that their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? 
a final point to make. In Jesus' day, and even now, we can read, study, and discuss the Bible our whole lives and still miss its central message. It's a bit like walking with someone for hours and not realizing who they are. We can miss the central message of the Bible, that it is this unified story that leads us to be with Jesus Christ. And that in life, above all else, above career, house, wealth, status, even family, that this story challenges us to make Jesus our treasure because being with him is the best treasure that we can ever have. So may, as we read the scriptures, may our hearts burn within us as we seek to grasp its central message and as we seek to make Jesus the Messiah our treasure above all things. Amen.